All right, you guys can hear me. There's handouts. If you didn't get a handout, they're in the back on that table. And uh, yeah, snag one of those. Jeff, Mr. Hansen, you want to shut those doors behind you? We don't want anybody leaving. <laughs> Specifically worried about David Lohner. He's probably thinking about fishing right about now. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, whatever that is. Hey, let's pray, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna start. I want to spend a little bit of time with a review discussion. Like I, we, I've given you some big categories the last two weeks, and so I wanted to kind of discuss those categories a little bit. So you can almost see, like, really about seventy five percent of the sheet was me giving some of those review categories for you. But I, I want to discuss that with you because. I think it's important for the rest of what we're talking about in this class is understanding the nature of a third world culture, but then also the, the fragmentation and fracturing of evangelicalism. Like to see that becomes really, really helpful and it speaks then into the kind of things that we're going to be talking about today and the following days. But we're dealing with a tough topic just on its own today regarding the racial crisis and I want to make sure when we think about that, that we understand the perspective at a cultural level. And so that's why I want to do that review, also just for the purpose of making sure those categories are uh, functional for you. But let me just pray. Father, help us this morning as we get 45 minutes to discuss these big issues, to, to learn and to grow from them. Uh, may, may, our, may our dialogue be fruitful and helpful as we try to have the right lenses and spectacles biblically and theologically, to see and live in the world in which we live. And Father, that is a challenge, especially, arguably, in a tradition, Lord, that has been anti-intellectual for at least two generations, to help us to have a life of the mind along with a pious heart as we live the Christian life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a review and I, I want to discuss those, but let me go over points one and two, which is what I covered a couple weeks ago. We, we are currently living in a third world culture. Now remember this, if you, I don't want you to hear third world country. Economically, militarily, we are, not, we are first world country, but we're living in a third world culture. And, I, and that can be confusing. Brian Ott was saying, you know, that's hard that we, first, second, third is used for country and culture. But again, the big difference is Someone like Reef, who, the guy that kind of promoted this, was saying, well, if you look at the first number of 100 years of world history and then the next number of 100 years and then now, you kind of just break up the timeline where it moved from a first world culture, pagan transcendent, we're always acknowledging the gods and aligning ourselves with the pagan gods, to call it monotheistic transcendent, Christianity, Judaism, Judeo-Christian, right? Where again, what are you doing? You're aligning yourself with the transcendent. You're aligning yourself with God. God made the world, called it good. He made male and female. This is how God defines marriage. Like that's second world culture stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that arguably a Christian or certainly a Christian should be saying all the time. And then they watch the news and they see life in the womb. That's up to, that's up to the person if they want to keep it or not. Marriage can be defined by anybody who wants to define it. Right, all you look at the family and just all those kind of things, and what do adoption agencies do? Do they let two dads? Do you see what I'm saying? Gender, it could actually not be based at all upon anything to do with chromosomes or anything. Right, it could be about like you don't even do gender reveal till they're 15 to find out what gender they want to be. Like that makes no sense when you're aligning yourselves to a creator. 
But when you, when you move to a third world culture, oh, that's why. Because in a third world culture, it is not based on something, point one, it is not based on something sacred or transcendent. There is no authority above me that speaks to me. So much so my own body isn't even an authority. Like that's just, you just need to know that. If, if that's all you know, if there's no transcendent, that is shockingly different than a second world culture. Or just to st state it clearly, that it goes like directly against what God's word would say and what the Christian faith would demand. So you can just immediately understand that there would be huge conflict between somebody who is a believer in Jesus Christ who wants to align their lives with King Jesus and then the rest of the culture. And they can just look and say, man, it, it's just going nuts. But, but be aware of something in this. Do you know what the first century Christians were dealing with? They, they were second world culture Christians in a first world culture. We are second world culture Christians in a third world culture. So just realize that. Because I think we have this image like the world was great, just beautiful until like the 1960s. Well, that wouldn't be the case. If you were a sex, if you were, get this, right? If you were a successful businessman in the Roman world, one of your children, one of your children boys was a sex toy. Let me just state it that bluntly. So if you owned your own business, if you were in politics, if, if you had any, any wealth or land or kind of, kind of clout in your community, one of your kids, specifically one of your boys, was going to be trafficked, plain and simple. So I get that there's nudity on TV now. Maybe there, you know, maybe there wasn't with Leave it to Beaver. I get video games are pretty bad, but trust me, it hasn't been this slow decline. It's more like the, 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 the sea and the seashore. It's just an ebb and a flow. Sin is no worse now than it was with Cain and Abel, right? Sin was sin. It leads to death. It totally destructs. So we can have kind of a false narrative of that. We can base it on small data samples. We can look at our own culture. The reality is we are living in a culture similar to what it would have been in the first century, except instead of being pagan transcendent, it is now secular, imminent. There's no higher power. Notice what that second bullet point under number one says. The result of a third world culture is anti-culture, right? It's like everything opposed, which is why we see the abolishing of traditions, institutions, patterns of behaviors. It's cancel culture through and through. There's no values or morals that get passed on from one generation to the next. Your children, if they are honoring the Lord Jesus Christ and are, are, are viewing physical intimacy, for example, to be something that they reserve for the marriage covenant, will look like aliens. People that are gathering on Sunday to acknowledge a higher power look crazy. I mean, even just navigating that this morning with my oldest son, right, who's got literally stuff at 10.30 at Hananiga on a Sunday morning. And we're trying to navigate, how do we... He, he go, he, I mean, he comes up to me and says, Dad, I kind of know the deal. And I want to follow that. Corporate worship is a big deal. You know, and we, we, we negotiated missing growth hour because of that school command. We're like, yeah. So we're, we're, usually, you think he's going to get up for first service? There's no way. 
If you see my 16-year-old here at first service, then the Lord's probably coming after lunch. Because that's a, but he comes for a service because he's navigating that to honor the significance of corporate worship, but yet he can go then now and be part of something at 1030. But again, that's because actually the religion of our day starts at noon when football games start. So if you're going to actually do something of transcendent value, it's going to, it, you know, it, you're going to be fighting with, a, and that'll be more and more. And this is why you see it's pretty hard to have your kids involved club soccer, club volleyball, club anything. Guess what? It will start dominating Sundays because there is no Lord's Day. And you will just look stranger and stranger and stranger. And families have to figure out how to negotiate that. And you can say all day long, man, it sure is different than the 50s. Well, yeah, but not maybe the 1950s, but not the 50s A.D. It actually isn't any different at all. Uh, the, the worship day, the, the work week was 10 days in the Roman period. What did you do on the seventh day of the week? By the way, that's the whole 1 Corinthians 11 situation with the Apostle Paul. All these wealthy people who don't have to work, 70% were in the fields. They're farmers, right? They don't have to work. The wealthy people who are, they've got the big enough house to host the house church. They got all the food there, and they show up right 11 in the morning, and they're sitting there, and they're like, Man, that Lord's Supper stuff, because they, they would actually do it the right way with a feast, right? And they're like, I'm kind of getting hungry. And you got guys working until six, seven at night. And so what was the church doing? Well, they, they're starting to partake. Well, they don't have to work. They, they, they own the land. And they're Christians, but they're like, that's okay. We can eat start now. We'll, we'll, I'll have a little more at seven when we start the service. And Paul's like, don't you dare touch it. Don't you dare in any way reflect that your brother or sister who worked in the field all day isn't equally deserving of that food. You literally wait. And I mean, you, and you, you could read that and say, dude, I just had a couple crackers. And Paul's using language like bring judgment on yourself. But like, look at that. Here's Paul trying to navigate for the Christian how you live in a first world culture where it's not a seven day work week and Sunday is off for the majority. I mean, again, a lot of people that work on Sunday, you're Firemen, police, and the great service that they do, medical professionals, and others. There's numerous people that might have to work on Sundays, and that's the way the world is, and, I, and the Lord understands that, as do we. But the reality is many, many people get to have Sundays off because this culture used to be a second world culture where they base time on the Jewish measurement of time, creation account, the Christian Jewish, rather than the pagan. The pagan was 10 days. The Judeo-Christian was seven days. So you can even see there's still a remnant of that second world culture. It's just now being eclipsed. So that a local school or soccer leagues, dude, flood your Sundays. Golf, golf leagues, they're, they're flood Sundays because those are no longer the Lord's day. But it is, even is more than that. This anti-culture will be attacking everything, even traditional values like what is marriage what is gender? All of that is up for decision. What is identity? So that's the world we're in. And I, and I wanted you to understand those categories. Like that is important for you to have in your mind. And to be honest with you, I can't imagine a more important category. If you're a mom or a dad or a grandpa and grandpa, you're trying to raise, you're trying to raise teenagers, it might be helpful to know third world culture because that's exactly what they're living in. You think they're not, not going to go to Rock Valley College or UW-Madison or UW-Platteville or University of Illinois and be engaged? It is total third world culture. 
It's exactly what it is. So you should probably know the impulse of that and, and literally demarcate now. How do I catechize myself or my family to be Christian in a third world culture. That's why for my family, and I would say this for the family of God, Sunday morning is a really big deal. Like it's not just a, well, it's good, I, I, I like the donuts. And I get to see my friends. Like you need to, because your kids, you are being catechized to love other things. And you need to orient your life around King Jesus. And by gathering on Sundays and worshiping his name and remembering the gospel and even the order of creation, worshiping on the first day of the week, right? Or the first day of the new creation, which is why Sunday, not Saturday. All of those things are liturgically forming you and your children. So that when my son has something at 1030, by the grace of God, there's no argument. He comes, already thought it out and said, Here's what I'm thinking, Dad. Are you okay with this? I'm like, yeah. It's, you can miss growth hour, sure. I, I, I get it. You're trying to navigate that. And I, wanna, I want you to try to have things that you're engaged with at school or work or whatever. And we, we need to navigate that. But I wanted that. But that has to be formed. That's just normal. So talk to me. Talk to me about this third world culture reality that, that, that I introduced a couple weeks ago. Give me your thoughts. Give me your impressions. Let, let's spend a few minutes discussing that together. What are your comments or what, what are your questions you would even have about that? I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So the comment is, for, for you couldn't hear, is the concern is bringing third world culture into the church. How, how do we navigate that and set up boundaries? And, and, and this, this is the challenge. I mean, it's always going to be the challenge. It's always going to be the challenge. You're, you're always in a culture. You're not in a vacuum. You're in a culture, and you are being catechized of what is important, what is significant, etc. My small group's reading a book by Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith. He's a, he's a professor, Calvin College, Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it's literally called You Are What You Love. And it, I mean, chapter two, which our, our small group's discussing today, Lorna, you better finish that. We're discussing that today. And it, it, he literally talks about, he literally talks about how you are formed and you're not even, it doesn't feel like forming. He, he says, too, for too long, Christians have based it on thinking. Like we just have the right argument. No, 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 no. It's not always an argument. Like I never sat my boys down and said, okay, uh, what's your favorite football team? Chicago Bears. Right, here's a cookie, right? Like, why are the Bears the best team? No, they literally saw me week after week watching the Bears as little tiny boys. And what's their favorite football team? Well, I would have never let it be the Patriots, number one. And it was, can't be the Cowboys. It's the Bears. And I never once said, let's have a devotional about the Chicago Bears. There was no homework. We never talked about it at dinner. They learned to love because they saw me loving it. What else have they seen me love? What else have we been adopted to love? And that's what's hard. It feels instinctive. It feels natural. It feels normal. But it may not have ever been checked to get to that comment. It may never have been checked by 
the Word of God in Scripture is, is this of God or of the world? And that requires a lot of work, and we have a lot of work to do. So to navigate in the third world culture, to get to, get to where the common is, we have to have be these discussions all the time, all the time thinking, well, wait, let's, let, let's think about things like race. Because if we're not careful, the racial discussion will go in a third world culture direction, which I would argue it has done, not just in the world, but also in the church. Let's talk about politics, and if we're not careful, it will go a third world culture, which I would say is not only happening in the world, but also happening in the church. But we need to think about those things. That requires a lot of mental work, the life of the mind. And we're dealing with the pandemic of anti-intellectualism, which literally in the 60s, books were being written about saying, Americans don't read, they don't think, they don't study, TV's dominating. Now you had cell phones and social media Literally, we have lost the life of the mind. And it is killing us. And it will only be what we love in a therapeutic culture, in a psychological culture, that will, that will be our teacher. Other comments on the third world culture stuff? Yeah. Yeah, so you're saying, when you're saying what's the difference between a second world culture and a third world culture, one would be, you're saying the size and complexity yeah, well, I mean, and there's two, there's two books that write on that and, and that address it, and both of them are like trying to swim through wet cement. So just be aware of that. But one is by a Christian theologian named Carl Truman called The Making and Triumph of the Modern Self. Great read. I mean, it is a great read. And that's probably the best one to read, and it's, it's the shorter one at 430-some pages. The one that's become standard over the last few years is by Charles Taylor called The Secular Age, which is, again, totally picking on this. But this guy is smarter than all of us combined, and reading him is a lot of work. But you will find that Truman uses and explains. I mean, when you, when you have books written to help explain books, then you know that that first book was hard. Like people have written, there's been two books I know of written to explain Charles Taylor's book. Like that, that's, that, he won't be teaching a growth hour here, let's just say that. Um, but but it's, it's an epic book, right? It's, it, it will be a classic of demarcating this is how. But Truman shows how the move to the, the individual, the psychological, right, a disengagement, um, of the, the, the modern self. Like, that's the idea. Like, culture used to be, everybody was a collectivist. And now that individualism has just gone on steroids. So that, that is that shift. So how did we go from being collectivist, where if your dad's a baker, you're a baker, to total individualist? There, there isn't even public shame anymore, right? Like, you can't be shamed or, can, like, it is, it's self-identifying. There's no... Truman is the, probably the best one to read on that. That'll describe that move. But it, it, there's a lot of factors. And he, here's the thing, Vince, it, it goes back 200 years. So this doesn't happen over a weekend. This isn't a microwave. This is, this is a century-old crockpot that literally started with the Enlightenment and manifests itself so that by the time you get to the middle of the 20th century, then, you get, then it just starts blossoming. And what do you find in that period of time? Civil rights... And ultimately, in the 70s, abortion, and then you get in the recent days, marriage, and then more recent days, 
gender, and, the, and really in almost your lifetimes, some of you before your lifetimes, but there's people in here where it's really almost been their whole lifetime is when it started blossoming. Again, and, you're, and, and, and we're only thinking this is like just happening or it's just a political thing or it's the morality of the nation. And actually it goes back two, 300 years is a slow development of thinking differently, engaging differently with higher powers, the modern self, etc. So it's a fascinating account and it does get complex, but Truman's the best book to read on that. And then that'd be a fun study. Like if somebody's like, man, I just want help reading through that book. Maybe that's something a church does. Like maybe we're like, hey, we're going to take literally six months and we're going to meet every other week and we're only going to read 25 pages at a time and we have somebody walking you through that book. It would not be easy, but it would be a fascinating account. And that's the kind of aspects of the life of the mind that we should start seeing more in the church. And I'm not saying you all have to be readers. I get that. Because if we were doing like construction projects, I'd be the last guy you'd invite. Like we, 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 had a, we had a staff elder get together recently and we did this nail competition and like Marshall Newhouse goes, uh, you did pretty good in that nail. I'm like, what, what are you trying to say? Well, I didn't think you could hold a hammer. I can hold a hammer. Well, the nail's not gonna go straight, but I can hold the hammer. Hey, give me that hammer back. But, but you know what I'm saying? Like we're, we all have different gifts, but at some level between the scholar, right, and, 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 and the, on the far side, there's got to be that middle ground where most of us are generally able to think and have categories. And if we're going to be living in a culture like this and discipling people in a culture like this, we better have those categories. You might not have already read Truman or ever heard the book. You might not even read Truman. But you sitting in a growth hour like this, you're like, third world culture. I got that. And now you look at the news differently. And you're hearing lectures differently. And the conversations your kids are bringing home from high school or college, you're, you're, you're reading that differently. All because you learned a category that's like a set of glasses that help you see when the glasses are off, everything was a bit blurry. Now it comes into better focus. And that should be happening in churches like ours. Other comments or, or questions about this third world culture? Steve, I think. Yeah. That's the question. And, and it's hard, and, and arguably one way that, I mean, this is, this is the challenge of this generation, well, in the next couple, but the argument might be, it's going to look different now. Here's the thing, they're not going to come to church, number one. Just as you're probably not going to go to a Buddhist temple. You're probably not going to walk into a mosque, just because, I just kind of want to visit, like that wouldn't be the case. So it's not, it's not going to be those kind of ways. Here's another thing. They no longer have any category of sin. It's just gone. That doesn't mean we don't talk about sin. Actually, we need to. But the way to, the, the way to explain that is going to have to be through a, a cr overcrowded forest with a whole lot of trees where you've got to kind of walk at an angle. You're, tack you're sailing into the wind. You're tacking. You know, when you're sailing in the, directly into the wind, you never go straight into the wind. You're always angling and angling and angling, and you ultimately are going true north, but you've never aimed north one time. So you've got to think about sin is no longer what they innately feel. In fact, they're the barometer of truth and right. Their body doesn't even tell them if they're boys or girls. It's, it's whatever they feel. So how are you going to say, well, you know we're all sinners, right? The answer is Jesus. They're like, no, I don't know that. So now you've got to have totally different conversations about evangelism. 
You got, you got to talk about it in different ways. And that, again, hear this. This is not, this is not the first time this has happened. I think we can feel that because we just think of a data sample of what we grew up with, where basically there were white Baptist-like churches on every corner, right? What do you think the first Christians had to do? The first Christians were literally martyred because they were called atheists because they believed there was only one God. In a first world culture, there's gods everywhere. Everything is connected to God. And here's the Apostle Paul saying, nope, there is one God. That's it. And they're like, dude, you're an atheist. And you are threatening public order. Like if the gods, first world culture, get angry at us, that, that risk. So when, when, when a Roman fire started and a Roman Caesar blamed Christians, why did he blame Christians? Because he was saying the gods saw the number of people coming to faith in Christ who were not worshiping them, and they decided to punish. So what did the Romans do? They went to every church and every Christian, and if they didn't kill you, you were kicked out of colleges, you were fired from your jobs. Welcome to reality. And that, that, just, that was the world. So how do you talk about one God when the person you're talking to has no trouble believing in God, but for them it's gods and there's hundreds of them and it has nothing to do with a personal, well, God wants to get, they, did, they thought of gods about as personally as you think of a tornado. You just don't want to get hit by it. But then Paul's saying, no, he, God, your father loves you, wants to adopt you. That, that was completely alien. They had to find a way to communicate that in a fallen pagan world. And actually, the New Testament is describing second world culture being communicated in a first world culture. We're just now in a third world culture. We have our own questions we need to ask. We need to be thinking about having these conversations. And, and the, sad, the sad part is we can even be fighting about the best way to do that. And a lot of times churches just want to, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to preach the gospel. I, I want to too. What's the gospel? How is that communicated? What's the best way to do that? Let me look at that second point, and we'll talk about that. Since God made humanity to be meaning-making beings, right, that he made us, and we know this from Scripture, God made us to de de desire something transcendent. All people will devote their lives to some grand story and higher purpose. We know that from Scripture. I'm not saying that from culture. I'm saying we know that from Scripture. So here's the problem. Those bullet points below. When teleology is dead, that's a fancy word for design. When purpose is, is gone, then self-creation is the goal and pleasure is the key to eternal life. So if you want to know what salvation is, it's pleasure. And look how radical second world culture Christians look. Like, bless, if you were in second service, here's what you're going to sing, for a little trailer. Or if you were in first, here's what you'll sing in second. Blessed be the name of the Lord on a road marked with suffering. And you're like, why am I blessing the Lord in the road, Mike, with suffering? Because in third world culture, there shouldn't be suffering. The goal is non-suffering. And here are we Christians saying, I'm suffering. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because our salvation is not found in our circumstances, but in our Savior. But here's the big takeaway. In a third world culture, here it is. And somebody asked, how do you keep it from out of the church? I don't know. Here it is. In third world culture, religion is replaced by politics. There's got to be good and evil. There's got to be messiahs and satans. There's got to be. 
Like that's how, that's, that's how we were wired to know that there is ultimately God, there's ultimately evil, and if it's no longer in the cosmos of God and Satan and it gets shrunk down into our little world, guess what? Now you're gonna find a new savior and now you're gonna find a new Satan. And my guess is it's just gonna be right on what the cable news is selecting for us. So we speak with apocalyptic imagery about politics. This is the end of America as we know it. Not really. Unless you see the cloud, the, the, the moon cut in half, and the archangel, you hear it. Okay, then yes, it's the end of America as we know it. But until you see the archangel and the trumpet, uh, not really. Because that's exactly what they said in the 90s and 80s and 70s and 60s. And, and if it wasn't Marxism, it was socialism, but socialism was communism. If it, if it wasn't Obama, it was maybe it was a Roman Catholic president or maybe it was, maybe it was the, uh, you name it. There's always been a bad guy. And now it's just magnified where there's always new messiahs. Remember that, that sign? Maybe some of you drove down Hamburg Road. I feel bad for this guy. I don't know who he is. Who has that? Save America right there in between two trees. President Donald J. Trump. It's no longer Jesus who saves. Who saves? Politicians do. They're the new priesthood or pastors of the religion of America, which is politics. Right? And that has just, we open the doors of the church and let that come right in. So that now you literally have, I met with pastors this week, Wednesday, literally guys holding back tears because of the exhaustion, being told, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm getting called. This is what they were, guys were saying this. All, all Rockford area. They're like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting called liberal. I'm, they call me woke. I, I, he goes, I had to look up what woke meant. I didn't even know what woke meant. Like, how could I be promoting that if I didn't even know what it was? Like, I'm getting accused of all these things. Why? Well, because that, poli that political transcendence of politics has just come right in through the door of the church. And that explains number three, last of review, the four-way fracturing of evangelicalism. There it is. And I, I gave abbreviated summaries of each of them, neo-fundamentalist evangelical, mainstream evangelical, neo-evangelical, and the post-evangelical. I didn't even mention the other two, which are basically people left the church. And look at the implications. Here, here's the argument of that essay that some of you asked for and I e emailed out to you. If you asked, um, there's a loss of elasticity, meaning the argument of, the of this article is ones and twos, so then we'll not be able to gather with threes. And twos and threes, they're being fought on both sides. If, if, if you're a Mainstream evangelical or neo-evangelical, the, the neo-fundamentalists call you liberal, and the post-evangelical call you a fundamentalist. And if you're a type C church, it's a whole different ballgame, and, and you're, you're just called woke. You're woke. If, if you just even mention, if you even want to mention racial tensions in this country, you're woke. Because now, those are cuss words in a politicized culture that has made that religion. So you turn to something like race. See number four today? Here's, here, here's the premise I wanted to give. I don't even know how you talk about race without either getting fired or just starting a brawl right here in this room. Because that stuff is loaded, and it's loaded on both sides. It is, it is not just a Black Lives Matter 
kind of group that is loading that, it is just as loaded on the other side. And again, here, here, here's what I would suggest why. The racial crisis in our country is a manifestation of a third world culture. And the same crisis in the church is a manifestation of the fracturing of evangelicalism. Because it would be so beautiful. I wish I could say this, like that first comment. I wish I could say, dude, the world is going to totally debate race. That's understandable, especially in the third world culture. But do you know what happens the moment that topic enters the church? Like all the politics put to the side, great biblical theology regarding made in the image of God, the nature of our createdness, the multinational, multi-ethnic makeup of the church that Revelation clearly describes, and it's just going to be beautiful. But it's not. In fact, the exact same crises outside the church regarding race are happening inside the church, and literally churches are splitting or Christians are departing churches over this topic. And these pastors I met with on Wednesday, it actually, none of them said it was a doctrinal issue. None of them said, yep, I no longer believe in inerrancy and I had people leave my church. Or I no longer believe in sin or the resurrection. Like it, it had nothing to do with those things. It was totally, if they thought I used woke language, they were gone. They don't even talk to me. They don't even ask what I mean by it. There were just these kind of buzzwords that those get used, boom, political. I couldn't even, one guy said, I, I prayed for what was going on in Minneapolis. I had two families leave. All I did was pray. All I did was pray for the racial tension going on in Minneapolis. Two families left the church. How's that happen? Because politics are now religion. And politics become the new doctrinal statement has nothing to do whether this person believes all the core doctrines of the evangelical faith. It has to do if he believes the core doctrines of that political system. Brothers and sisters, as the Bible would say several times, that should not be. Yeah. Brad, um, I love you. Oh, thank you very much for asking those questions. Uh, do, do I consider the mask wearing, uh, what was the last part of your question again? Yeah, well, I mean, I, what the, here's the thing. I don't think, he, you, can't avo you can't avoid being viewed as political. That, that's what makes us dangerous. You are either political in this way or that way, but you are political. Like, that you, all of a sudden, the, there was no, hey, we're not going to choose a political party. We're not doing Republican sign-up for elections or Democratic sign-up for elections in the lobby. You, couldn't, you, couldn't, you could no longer look neutral. If you in any way, in any way, gave any acknowledgement to COVID regulations or mandates for the, by the state, you were labeled political. If you did not, you were labeled political. So you, it was just which kind of political. I, I want to save that for another, because we'll talk about the church and COVID, and that's a, that, it's a beautiful example. But the point is, that, that's why I mentioned that, that second point, second bullet point. In a third world culture, religion is replaced by politics. And brothers and sisters, that is all of us. And I don't care how much you would say, I don't, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm for traditional marriage. Yeah, me too. And I, you know, I think body parts have something to say about gender. Got it. Agreed. And I'm not for abortion. Understood. Neither am I. But all I'm telling you is, you've been catechized arguably your whole life. 
what we've listened to, what we've watched, what we've discussed, what has been emphasized over and over again, even by many of our Christian leaders, has been a transcending role of politics that has dominated the church. So that when all at one time, right, you have race, actual election, and COVID, boom. It's like a nuclear bomb. Would have done less damage to split us up. Because whatever our implicit politics were that had been elevating in our minds of highest importance, that dominated. And literally, people will leave churches and go to denominations that are completely in disagreement theologically with the church that they were just at. And it wasn't even, I, I talked to one guy that left our church. I said, so that's a, I mean, just to be clear, this is, these are the doctrines that this church holds. Are you worth, oh, you go, I didn't even know that. Why did he go to that church? Because of masks. And that church gave the Christian middle finger to Pritzker. And our church says, we're asking people to wear masks. And, and that was it. That was it. Right? And even if we said we're not, we're, we're not going to police masks, we're, or, or whatever the case may be, we're be they're, they're, it's, it's interpreted politically. But let, let's, go to, let's go to the race thing on the bottom. A couple things. First, race has been politicized. It, it, it has totally been politicized. And you can even see the two sides I put in the parentheses, right? It's either black lives matter or all lives matter. And boy, has critical race theory, I mean, anybody ever heard of that before, the, before 2019? Seriously. How many people heard of critical race theory before 2019? So I see a couple hands over there. So that's been around for almost 50 years. Why do you think you've never heard of it till now? By the way, can, I mean, and we don't have time to talk about it now, but it's, the, question, the rhetorical question I would ask is this, does anybody actually even know what it means? I, I actually ordered the classic third edition textbook by a guy named Delgado and read it about six months ago. Because I'm like, what in the world is this thing? What is it? So I read the textbook, the, the standard college text on critical race theory by Delgado, and was like, okay. And then I would hear it spoken about, and maybe 3% of the time it had anything to do with what that textbook said. How about this? Sin has been politicized. The whole, when it comes to race, look, look, look what I say. Is sin structural and systemic? Or is it individual? Like if you, if you use the word systemic racism, you are flaring people with anger. You are. Because they're like, they, they don't want you to speak about systemic sin. Here's the question. And again, for all of these, I'm going to think there's got, there's got to be a bit more of a center somewhere. Right? There's got to be a bit of a center. Because you can totally agree, disagree with something like Black Lives Matter. And as, as a Christian in its organization, I think you should. But yeah, you can agree that that saying, I am a man, going way back for how many generations, uh, has been, I am a person, I'm not three-fifths, has been 
in our vernacular as a slogan or saying for a long, long time. It may have been taken up and twisted, just like the rainbow has, which I think refers to God's common grace covenant with creation and beginning of Genesis. Right? The rainbow got usurped, politicized, and morphed. But I would say that God gets to use the rainbow before anybody else does. And I would say that when you had literally Christians saying, I am a man, I'm a person, my life matters back in the 60s and 70s, even if an organization takes that and decides to politicize it, I understand what that original brother was trying to say without in any way agreeing with anything to do with that organization. That literally is anti-culture. It's, it's total third world culture, anti-culture, destroy the family, etc. It is third world culture. That organization will not get my support. But if a person says, I'm a human, I count as a Christian, I get that. But I can't say it in this context. Because people will hear me supporting an either or. Is there systemic things that we fight, or is racism only individual? I think there's a lot of systemic things that we promote. Is abortion a systemic problem or an individual problem? Why, when we're fighting abortion, do we fight it systemically? Supreme Court, election. We don't just say, oh, I don't care about Supreme Court or, or uh, political election. Here's how we want to fight Abortion's an individual issue. All I want to do is try to teach individuals not to be abortionists. It has nothing to do with systemic. Well, that's not how we've engaged. I think we'd argue with systemic. Is the battle over marriage viewed as systemic? Like, we're talking about what the culture thinks about marriage. Systemic problem. We're thinking about what the government is doing about marriage. Systemic problem. So how come we can hold to, again, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to make a case for systemic racism. Don't hear me saying that. All I'm trying to do is say, how come we use systemic when we agree with the issue, but another issue, then we don't use it as systemic. So we're fine thinking systemically about abortion. We're fine thinking systemically about marriage or the family, but we're not fine thinking systemically when it comes to skin color even when, long before abortion was legalized, you had legalized racial discrimination for centuries in this country. And then the church is so politicized that they're not willing to wrestle with a balanced middle. And that balanced middle is important. Remember, remember 100 years ago? Liberalism and fundamentalism and what did our Christian tradition decide to do? Evangelicalism. Well, now you have political hard right and political hard left. We gotta find the middle. And there's actually a heritage of our forefathers, men and women in these areas around this country doing the exact same thing a century ago before any of you were born. And it could be a hundred years, it could be your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who may have to do the exact same thing, where they look at the hard left and they look at the hard right, and they have to say, a Christian view goes in the middle. I, can we speak, is racial, is racial sin only individual and not systemic? Is abortion only individual and not systemic? 
Is marriage only individual and not systemic? And then we promote, get this, systemic things like the family. Like that's, that's a system we're promoting. So we don't, we, don't, we don't only hold the things that we think are systemically wrong, we promote things in a systemic way like the family and moms and dads and structure and the church and community life. The last one is justice. Boy, that word, you can't, I mean, is justice... Can justice not be social? I, I, I get it. It's been, the word's been stolen, right? It's a wax nose. But doesn't justice have something to do with something social? It doesn't mean that we're all of a sudden promoting our whatever lives matter kind of sign. But I'm saying it would just be strange to think that justice is not social. But if you say social justice today, that's a, that's a for church. That's the post-evangelical. So then the one church, the neo-fundamentalist, says, we don't believe in social justice. We believe in biblical justice. Uh, I, I, I just hear semantics when I hear that. I don't know what to do with that. The moment Christ commanded me to love my neighbor, that's something social. The, the, the moment I'm supposed to be a good citizen, a Romans 13, and engage with my political leaders, that's something social. The moment that murder is called wrong, there's something social there. But again, those words are gone. And why? Because politics have become the new religion and there's heresy that gets decided for each of those groups. And if you're a neo-fundamentalist type one church, the word social justice is heretical. If you're a type four church post-evangelical, that is actually core to the sake of the gospel. Here, here are my concerns. We'll, then we'll take five minutes and discuss, and we'll come back. We can spend more time on this in other weeks. Here are my concerns. My first concern would be transcendent politics. It, it, we have been infiltrated by that in the church. We've already had some comments on that, and we need to be aware of that. Politics have been tr transcended. Anytime you see anybody saying, this is the end of America as we know it, throw that pamphlet out. It is not. Unless, again, you just heard the archangel's trumpet, okay, read the pamphlet. Second, false dichotomies. False dichotomies. False dichotomies. They're all over the place. Black Lives Matter or back the badge? Back the blue? Ser I got to choose between those? Seriously? If a cop sins, I want to call it sin. And if a black individual commits a crime and sins, I want to call it a crime and say it's a sin. Why do I got to choose between the two of those? Why would I ever choose between those two things? Because if I'm a Christian, I want to call sin, sin, and I want to see justice be justice. So no, you're not going to see me have a Black Lives Matter thing because that's been taken over by an anti-culture group, but you're not going to see me have a back the badge. But I, we got police officers in this church that I trust with my life. My closest high school friend is a cop, and his life has been horrific because of all that's gone on, and I love that man. It had nothing to do with me not wanting to actually back the badge. Of course I want to back the badge. Of course I do. That doesn't mean I overlook sin and injustice. Of course not. Why, why are there going to be false dichotomy? Why does it have to be individual sin or systemic when I'm contradicting that all the time? The way I talk about race would be individual sin, no systemic, and then I talk about abortion and culture and marriage? What? I'm just speaking on both sides of my mouth at the same time. Why is there a false dichotomy? And then the move to the edges. 
That's the, that's the concern, brothers and sisters. We've moved to the edges. And ultimately, it's this. We've lost the gospel. Like the gospel is not simply a social, political issue. And every generation, there's probably been a few, Constantine or something, where it's been some kind of theocracy or whatever, but almost every Christian, every generation has had to do, guess what? They had to be in the world, but not of it. And if I, speaking to the world, I would speak, hey, you, you need, I would be pushing on third world culture. I would be challenging unbiblical views of sin and anti-institution and anti-authority and all this kind of, I would be challenging those. But when I, when I come into our church, man, I'm going to say, brothers and sisters, you have been more pastored by cable news than by scripture. And if that's the case, then you need to repent and you need to adjust. Because if it's these false dichotomies, if it's this move to the edge, if it's the transcendence of politics, then you've got to find a center. And I say that because the options are you're either going to be producing and living a liberal Christianity that ultimately is dying, or you're going to be producing and living a fundamentalist Christianity from the 1920s that is ultimately struggling to hold on, or you are going to be evangelical and centered on the gospel, and you're going to walk right through all that chaos in the middle of a third world culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're going to call sin, sin, and you're going to call justice, justice, and you're going to look at the people made in the image of God. You're going to see all these things, and you're going to walk carefully. Even with something like race, it, 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 it shocks me that we are fighting people who won't look at their own bodies and body parts to determine gender, and yet we want to speak as if the proper way to look at bodies regarding race is colorblindness. Really? Is it colorblindness? Did I choose to be white? I certainly didn't choose to be sweet as German. And Swanson would say, I don't have enough sweet in me. Did somebody choose to be black? Did my, one of my closest brothers choose to be Samoan? Why does the Bible talk about every color and every nation, every tribe? So I'm not sure colorblindness helps me deal with the issue. It actually tries to get me to avoid it. So we've got to learn to navigate this. And even this discussion this morning, you know what it's done? It's just raised good questions for us. It's kind of given us some categories. We have a lot of work to do. And my hope is that we'll continue this conversation. Think on this. We can talk more next time. But, but, and we got other topics. to. We've got a few more weeks in this growth hour. But my hope is that stemming from this, we'll read books together. We'll be discussing these things in our small groups. We'll sit around the table with our junior high and high school children or grandchildren. We'll be discussing these ideas. We'll be wrestling with how to navigate it. When the next election comes, literally, when the next election comes, are, are, are we, we got the lenses on. Now we're thinking, hey, let's watch a debate together and then have a theological discussion afterwards. That would be fun. And I don't care if there's a fly in someone's hair or not. That's ridiculous. It doesn't do with a fly. Let's hear the rhetoric. Let's listen to the arguments. And then say, Lord, guide us in wisdom. 
Let's talk about the debates here and think wisdomly. Let's agree to disagree on things and not say, well, that's the Antichrist or the enemy. Because it's not transcendent. God is. He sits on the throne. He's not nervous about this generation any more than he was worried about the first generation. He's in full sovereign control. And he asks us to trust in him and walk in humility and love and mercy. And I haven't seen a lot of that in churches at large. And I'm beginning to see more and more of that here. And I'm hoping that just is fostered in us a humility and a, and, and a contrite heart and a love of mercy that makes us look different. Why? Because we shouldn't be acting like a third world culture. Because we know the king. Let me pray so we can end somewhat close to on time today. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Help us as we navigate this and these topics to walk in humility and a love of mercy and before you. Father, help us to be a thinking church, to wrestle with these issues, to avoid the false dichotomies, to, to, to move away from transcendent politics, to move center from the edges and to be grounded on the gospel. Father, we need help because we have not been given from even in our own tradition in the last few decades a ton of resources to do this. Forgive us, Father, where we have systemically as a church brought in third world culture politics. Forgive us where we have not been willing to make the gospel the core rather than a human gospel or human issue. And Father, we pray for, I pray for that group of pastors with whom I met on Wednesday that you would encourage those brothers who are battling this week in and week out. Give them strength to proclaim like prophets what is true and good and right. And may your spirit move in their churches just as we ask it moves in ours. Be with us now as we fellowship in between growth hour and the next service or we prepare our hearts for second service. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.